What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? you, you, you. This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This program is uh, just for you if you've got a question about the Catholic faith. We are here to answer those questions, especially for those of you who are not Catholic. Maybe you were an active Catholic years ago, fell away for whatever reason. Maybe you've never been a Catholic, uh, but you still have a question about the Catholic faith, maybe two questions that you really would like to answer, and we are here for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271- Two nine eight five, And of course, you can always send us an email, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you would like to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Put your question in the comments box, if you would, please. Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio, and uh, hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you so much. It is cooling off. Finally. That's a good thing. It is fine. Oh boy, it, it was just delightful when uh, when I got up this morning at whatever time that was, five fifteen, and I thought, yes, this is what we need to keep going with. So there was an interesting question that we started to answer on, mm, I think it was Monday's show, maybe Tuesday's show, uh, that there just wasn't time to answer. So to give that question its due, we're going to do it right now. This is an email from Jim. Do you have any comments on the theory of the cosmic Christ? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So in St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15, we read the following. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Um, Now, St. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, here presents Jesus as a cosmic character, a cosmic figure, one who who, uh, is responsible for the creation of the universe, one in whom the universe finds its its both its origin and its end and its purpose and its continuing act of being, um, one whose supremacy is not only over his body, the church, but over all of space and time as well. I, I don't know if you can get any more cosmic than that. Right? <laughs> so um, if you've ever been in a, a Byzantine Catholic church or an Orthodox church, you'll sometimes see the image of Christus Pantocrator, Jesus, the ruler of everything, and it'll be in the dome of the church, and there'll be this, this rather than a crucifix, you'll have the risen Christ, his face imprinted on this dome, looking down from heaven to evoke this, this cosmic aspect to Jesus's person and to his mission. Now, 
if that's what you mean by the cosmic Christ, well, then that's a biblical idea and I'm all for it. Uh, theologians have developed this in a lot of ways. One of my favorites is uh, St. Bonaventure in his book, The Mind's Journey into God, Itinerium Mentis and Deum. Uh, he looks at the ways in which Christ and the grace of Christ and the Blessed Trinity are reflected in or impressed upon, if you will, the natural world, uh, including the structure of our own consciousness. Again, it's an ex extremely cosmic notion of Christ's identity and his involvement with the world, uh, prompting interesting reflections on natural philosophy and human psychology and all of the rest of it. Again, if that's what you mean by the cosmic Christ, I'm all in favor of it. However, the language of the cosmic Christ has been borrowed, it's been assimilated by some who wish to turn it against orthodoxy. And I'm talking about Catholic orthodoxy. Right, to, right. To present it as a kind of alternative <clears throat> to the Catholic dogmatic tradition. And um, say, for example, Father Richard Rohr it would be associated with this in my mind. You know, someone who likes to poke through the tradition, find terminology, and then <clears throat> suggest what I would take to be a kind of novel interpretation, usually uh, taking aim at the magisterium and, and the central dogmatic tradition. At least that's the way I, I read that. And, and there are others that do the same thing. If uh, and, and sometimes uh, the cosmic Christ language gets uh, appropriated by people in the New Age movement to substantiate some of their theories. If that's what you mean by it, well then, I don't think that's faithful to the Catholic tradition, right? I mean, uh, uh, the... The, the language of Christ's cosmic rule is part of the tradition, it's part of the dogmatic tradition, it's part of the central tradition of the Catholic faith deriving from the scriptures. That's where it belongs, that's, the way it, that's where it should be interpreted. It should never be set in contrast to that tradition or to the authority of the magisterium. Very good. And uh, Jim, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from uh, Jared in Singapore. I have heard that the rosary is supposed to be our greatest weapon and that it's the most powerful prayer after the Mass. But what exactly is so great about the rosary and how is it the most powerful prayer and the greatest weapon? Thanks, Jared in Singapore. Hey, thanks, Jared. I appreciate the question. Well, you're not going to hear me defend the thesis that the rosary is the most powerful prayer or our greatest weapon after the Mass. I'm not going to defend that thesis. I understand that there are Catholics that take that position. That is a private theological opinion. They're entitled to it. You are not obligated to share it. Okay. Um, the, the, the prayer that is the most efficacious after the Mass is the faithful, penitent, contrite, persevering prayer to God for the graces necessary for our salvation. The, the faithful, contrite, penitent, persevering prayer, there's a lot of P's in there, Yeah. asking God for those graces that are necessary for my salvation, that is the prayer that God will infallibly answer in the affirmative. Sounds right? very humble. Right, exactly. And, uh, and, and, and therefore it's the most efficacious. Uh, Jesus well, he didn't need contrition, exemplified this in his own prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, which was, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Or mm. Blessed Virgin Mary, who says, be it done to me according to thy word. 10,000 rosaries for some intention that does not accord with the will of God is worth less than this cup of water that I have on my desk right here. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Jared, thanks for listening to us in Singapore. Hey, lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. 
It's called Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN Radio. Lines are open for you right now. If you have a question for David, 833-288-EWTN is that number, 833-288-3986. So that is uh, if you have a question. Now, if you're looking for news, as in what's going on in this world and how do we understand what's going on in this world, my recommendation is Catholic News Agency, CNA. You can rely on CNA to cover the mission and activities of the Catholic Church, including social, political, moral, and cultural issues from, of course, a perspective of faith. For the latest Catholic news, visit catholicnewsagency.com. It's an online service from EWTN News. And don't forget, you can get timely news updates directly into your email inbox. Just visit uh, EWTN.com and click on the word subscribe. You'll get a little menu of things that you can subscribe to. Just choose Catholic News Agency or CNA, and we will take it from there. We'll get to the phones in a moment here. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Rudolph sent us an email. He says, In the Bible, Jesus pronounces on more than one occasion that the bread and wine are his body and blood, the Last Supper, for example. So when someone goes to receive the consecrated host at Mass, they have two choices. Either it really is the body and blood of Christ, or Jesus is a liar, which, of course, is impossible. Could you comment on this? Um, Yeah, I appreciate the question. I agree that the Eucharist is Christ's body and blood. However, I disagree with the binary option that you've provided us with because it's it's historically a fact that people have in good faith, in good faith, yes. but but incorrectly uh, believed the wrong thing about the Eucharist. It is it, there's nothing in there's, there's nothing logically impossible about having an incorrect doctrine of the Eucharist in good faith without without calling Jesus a liar. Right. right, and uh, and I mean before the definition of the dogma of transubstantiation at twelve fifteen in the Fourth Lateran Council, there were some high medieval Catholic theologians that floated uh, theories of the Eucharist that would now be deemed heretical, but they did so in a good faith effort to try to make sense of a mystery. Okay, and, and so I. I, I I'm, I'm wary of anybody that says, if you disagree with me, you're necessarily a bad person. <laughs> yeah. Right. Sometimes you can just be mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. And uh, Rudolph, thanks so much for your email. Here's one now. Interesting. Uh, and, and a lot of people, uh, certainly non-Catholics, would have no idea, probably. This is from Ray. Could you please talk about the structure of the priestly vocation? For example, how does a monsignor earn that honorific? How does a bishop become a bishop? How does a cardinal become a cardinal? That sort of thing. Uh, yeah, okay, so it's not, there's not a smooth transition from one to the other, and you, can, <laughs> you don't have to go through every step on the way, right? Okay, so, okay. Um, the clerical state, let's just talk about the clerical state. Uh, there are different kinds of clerics. A cleric, somebody who has received holy orders, uh, in the church, um, everyone who has holy orders in the church is attached to a diocese. That's that's thing number one. You got to be attached to a diocese. You have to be under the authority of a bishop. Uh, you could be a deacon, and that's the first grade of holy orders. You could be a priest, uh, or you could be a bishop, which is the full. That's the that's the full package of holy orders when you're a bishop. Yep. Um, if you're a priest, you could be a pastor, or not. All right. You're not necessarily a pastor just because you're a priest. 
Um, you can be a priest who is in a religious order, for example, what we call a religious priest, mm-hmm. uh, who may never have the care of souls in a, pa- in, a, in a parish. He may have some other work in the church. I had a really good friend who was a Dominican priest. He was 100 years old when he died, 101 years old. He'd never been the pastor of a parish, never had, never had the care of souls in that sense, right? Lived his whole life as a priest, but never been a pastor. Pastor is somebody who has the care of a parish, uh, and has authority over that particular parish. The mm. bishop uh, is uh, is the highest authority over a specific geographic region in the church. Um, he is not just a functionary serving at the will of the pope. He has his own authentic jurisdiction and autonomy within the territory that is his territorial diocese, and the priests of his diocese work for him and are subject to him. Um, so often, when a parish priest has... Uh, a distinguished career and is getting advanced in age, it used to be the case that sometimes a bishop might ask Rome to grant an honorific title to such a priest, and that title was Monsignor. And all it meant was this fellow had done well, good and faithful servant, and had been a, a good parish priest over the years, and the bishop wished to honor him in that way. Uh, we no longer Monsignor people. Pope Francis eliminated the title. He, he grandfathered in those that were already Monsignored, but there'll be no new Monsignors in the Church, at least under Francis' regime, to be sure. Um, uh, The cardinals are appointed by the Pope, so they don't get elected. The Pope chooses them, and the major job of the cardinals is to elect the future Pope. When the current uh, Pope dies uh, or resigns, as can happen once every 500 years, (laughs) then the College of Cardinals will meet and elect the next Pope. Okay. And there you go. Hey, uh, uh, Ray, thank you so much uh, for your email. Calls are open right now. Lines are open at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, a great time to get in at 833-288-3986. This email from Jacob is right up your alley, David. You're going to enjoy this. I've seen some Christians and Jews claim that mankind didn't eat meat before the Great Flood. And only after did God give permission to eat animals, Genesis 9-3. Some go even further and claim that because of this, humans were originally designed not to eat meat. So it's healthier and more natural to be either a vegetarian or a vegan. Is this accurate? How would we square this with what science has taught us about human evolution? Are these people simply taking Genesis too literally? Thank you, Jacob. Okay, thanks very much. Appreciate the question. So it would seem from the narrative of Genesis that with it, within the context of that story uh-huh. that humans did not eat meat until after the flood. That's, that's what seems to be the case within the narrative of the book of Genesis. Okay. I think that has absolutely no relevance whatsoever at all, either for uh, theories of human nutrition or, or theories of, uh, of human evolution. I think it's irrelevant to both of those things. Mm. Um, and look, I I could talk all day about diet and nutrition. It's a topic that I'm interested in, even though I have no expertise in it. Um, but I think everybody would agree, uh, who is an expert in this field, that humans historically have been opportunistic omnivores. And and you know, pure veganism is um, I think is really a modern phenomenon. I'm, I'm not personally aware mm. of any traditional culture, hunter-gatherer society or what have you throughout the world, whether it's you know post-agricultural revolution or not, 
where pure veganism was followed. I just don't, I mean, I don't think that's, I don't think that's how the human species developed. Uh, I don't see any evidence of that, any, any reading that I've done. Okay. And so, you know, I, I could not personally make a claim about this. I wouldn't advocate pure veganism as like the only healthy or the necessarily best option for all people mm-hmm. everywhere. It's certainly not based on something in, in Genesis. I, I myself adopted a vegan lifestyle back in 2018 at the specific instructions of a physician to address mm. particular problems in my own health, right? But I, I would never seek to impose that on uh, on everybody else in the world, except, you know, I have moments of getting caught up in ideological fury. And <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded a friend of mine one time told a great joke, uh, John Tidwell, you know yes, him. Yes. He said, uh, hey, David, why did the vegan cross the road? I, I said, I don't, know, I don't know, John, why? He said, to tell you that he's a vegan. Ooh. <laughs> Ouch. Ooh. Okay. Well, there's a, there, yeah. Okay. An, an evangelist. I, I can tell this story, right? Yes. I, I can tell this. You, I'm, you can. Right. Jacob, thanks so much uh, for your email. Uh, lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN for a call to communion with Dr. David Andrews on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Let's go to a line, uh, let's say a call that came in last night or uh, recently on our EWTN listener comment line. My name is Allie from New Orleans, and my question is in regarding alleged child abuse in the church. I'm very interested in becoming Catholic, but one of the major things that is holding me back is the concern of hypocrisy as it deals with alleged abuses in the church of children. How do we reconcile that? Is that demonic influence upon weakened persons? And how do we deal with that? How do we move forward in the spiritual faith when our leaders are practicing acts which are not necessarily becoming of professional clergy? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Fantastic question. I really appreciate it, and I'm deeply sensitive to the issues that you raise. I think all of us are repulsed uh, by the revelations about clerical sex abuse that have emerged over the last you know, 10 to 20 years or so. Yeah. And it's, it's just been devastating, and many people's lives have been <laughs> profoundly wounded because of this horrible crime. Um, now, I'd like to reflect on what you do about that as a Catholic. For what it's worth, I'm a convert to the Catholic Church. I joined the Church in 2003. 2002 was the height of the first wave of sex abuse allegations. You know, the Boston Globe ran their stories and so forth, and mm. that was kind of all in the news. And uh, when I made the decision to come into the church, knowing about those things really didn't stop me. They didn't deter me even for a second, to be honest with you. And the reason why, for me personally, is that my decision to become Catholic w- was not motivated by like a desire to fellowship with, say, Cardinal Law in Boston, right? I, I didn't I didn't want—I wasn't—they're not the people that inspired me to become Catholic, you know. Um, what inspired me to become Catholic were the example of the saints, people like St. Francis of Assisi, uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, St. Augustine of Hippo, St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, it was the exemplary Catholics down through the centuries whose lives I wanted to be associated with. I wanted to belong to Christ in the same way that they did. Those people came to holiness through the Catholic faith. I thought that was imitable, and I wanted to be associated with that with that stream of historical causation. And as a student of church history, I knew that there have always been bad apples in the church from day one. I mean, even among Christ's own disciples, Judas was definitely a bad apple. Uh, it wasn't a very favorable ratio. What, say, one out of 12? 
Not you know, good. Became yeah. a you know a, a thief and a traitor. Yeah. Um, I can tell you this for sure. This I know for sure that the ratio of clerical uh, sex abusers is much lower than one out of twelve. Right. So Jesus's own company of the disciples would seem to be more corrupt than <laughs> than you know the modern Catholic clergy. Um, that's not to take anything away. It's not to mitigate in any way the horror of those acts. Now, how do I think about those men and their hypocrisy? Well, I think it was hypocrisy, right? And and there's no there's no teaching in the Catholic Church that the ordained state makes you necessarily holy. Um, being clergy is a state of life in the church, much like marriage. Marriage is also a state of life in the church. Both of them are sacraments. Ordination, holy orders, and marriage are both sacraments. Sacraments are meant to help you come to holiness. The priest should come to holiness through his sacrament of holy orders. The married person should come to holiness through the sacrament of matrimony. No guarantee that he will do so. No guarantee that she will do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are plenty of married Catholics that live exemplary lives, and plenty who don't. And the same thing is true of Catholic clergy. Um, it's also important to keep this perspective in mind, that the clergy are not the church. The church emphatically is not reducible to the clergy. The, the, the church is the people of God. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. And, uh, and the clergy, at any given time in history, may not even be the most influential agent within the people of God. They have a specific sphere of activity and responsibility that they can do well or badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you look through history, I mean, it's clear to me that, um, you know, like Mother Teresa of Calcutta, pro- I mentioned earlier, probably the most influential Catholic of the 20th century, next to Pope John Paul II, Mother Teresa was not a clergyman. She was a woman religious, right? Unbelievably effective, unbelievably influential, not a clergyman. Um, and, uh, you know, you could look to Catholic lay people, um, uh, Louis and uh, Zadie Martin, for example. Yes. Parents of St. Teresa of Lisieux, three mm-hmm. people that weren't clerics, two lay people and one religious. Unbelievable saints, powerfully influential in the history of modern Catholicism, not clergy. Now, they're also holy Catholic clergy, and I've been privileged to know them, some of them. And one thing that the media coverage will never give you, you're never going to open the Boston Globe or Time Magazine or the New York Times and read self-sacrificial, self-effacing priest in Kansas City gives all of his time and effort to the pastoral care of the poor in his diocese. (laughs) End of story. That's not exciting. You're not going to hear that. And so those unsung heroes go unnoticed and obscured by the salience of a few and their scandalous behavior. And then finally, I'm sure you know this, but the problem of bad apples is not unique to Catholicism. Unfortunately, it's plagued all kinds of religious organizations, Christian and non-Christian, uh, and, uh, and non-religious organizations, from public schools to Boy Scout troops and what have you. I mean, I went to a secular high school. It was a private school, no religious affiliation at all. And they, a few years ago, did their own investigations of their past history, and you would be shocked at the percentage of the faculty that that got outed for inappropriate behavior, people that I studied with, right, who were up to no good, up to no good. 
So there you go. And uh, thank you so much for your call. Glad that you called in on our listener comment line. Uh, that's something that we keep open 24 hours a day. All you have to do is call uh, 833-288-EWTN. If we're not doing uh, one of our live programs, that line will uh, switch over to the listener comment line and we will uh, get a recording. Hopefully we can get it on the way we got that one on for you. In a moment, we'll be talking with Jay in Hampton, Virginia. Also, Sue, a first-time caller in Northwest Ohio. John, a first-time caller in uh, Cincinnati. And lots more. We have three lines open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Glad you're with us for the Wednesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Jay is listening to us in Hampton, Virginia on WEPV. Hey there, Jay. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, yes, sir. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Howdy. Um, yes, um, there's, uh, there was a oneness preacher. I don't, I, I don't know if you heard of this uh, type of group. Uh, uh, they say they're in, a, in, a, in the faith or in Christianity. But uh, basically, uh, I think they don't believe in the Trinity. They say basically Jesus is everything. He's the Father, He's the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Um, I just wanted to see what was your, uh, your take or opinion uh, scripturally uh, on that type of belief. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm well aware of this belief. Uh, there's a there's a fancy name for it in Christian history. It's called modalism. Uh, sometimes it's called Sabellianism after a second century figure named Sabellius who held it, but but more broadly termed as modalism because central to the doctrine is the idea that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are simply modes that describe the activity of the one God. And you might compare it to the view that say, you know, my name's David. Um, I, I'm one person, but I am simultaneously a father and a son and a brother um, and a husband. Mm-hmm. I have these various modes of activity and, and spheres of responsibility without ever ceasing to be one person. And so that's that's basically what's held by uh, so-called oneness Pentecostal theologians uh, uh, and by uh, the classical uh, Molinist position. And the Catholic Church rejected that doctrine a very long time ago as heretical, uh, is unacceptable, uh, because... The sacred scripture presents the Father and the Son as persons in relationship. So Jesus, for example, prays to the Father. Um, the Father endorses the ministry of the Son. Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And, you know, Father, uh, have forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a reciprocal loving relationship between Father and Son— and, uh, and the Spirit also seems to be distinct in some capacity insofar as Christ says, well, I'm going away, but I'm going to send one to you who will be the comforter, the mm. paraclete, namely uh-huh. the Holy Spirit who yes. will dwell with you forever. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in Scripture presented as three different persons. Now, uh, what the oneness people have correct is the doctrine that there is only one God. Yes, there is only one God. That is also the Christian confession. That's a Catholic confession. Uh, but here is the mystery. In normal experience, when you meet one being, one entity, one singular unit of the human species, there's, there's one essence there, one human nature, and there's only one person there. And so we're very accustomed to thinking one essence, one person. 
But that's not the case with God. With God, there's one what? One thing, one essence. However, there are three persons. And you go, well, well, how can that be? Well, just because humans don't exist in that state of tripersonal unity doesn't mean that God can't. And so the dogma of the Trinity is, among other things, an attempt to reconcile the biblical data that there is but one God, that the Father is God, that the Son is God, that the Spirit is God, and yet they're three distinct persons. Jay, thanks for checking in from Hampton, Virginia. Great question there. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Sue now, a first-time caller from Northwest Ohio, listening on the great Annunciation Radio. Hey, uh, Sue, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon, both of you. Uh, Just not quite sure how to start the question, but I was out at an ecumenical event in Northeast Ohio this past weekend. It was wonderful, Um, put on by a local to that area Catholic church and welcomed many of our Protestant brothers and sisters. However, there was a uh, young man and his wife and baby outside of the event basically telling all of us that we were going to go to, and forgive my language, but that we were going to go to hell. And so I took it as an opportunity to learn and understand where he was coming from, so I asked him a bunch of questions. And he just proceeded to tell me that because I am Catholic, point blank period, I am going to hell. And questioned him on certain different things. It's very clear papal succession is not something he's uh, wanting to subscribe to. And also the, um, as he said, talking to dead people and worshiping Mary, which tried to expand his understanding of that, wasn't really open to it. Explained to him that my, you know, three-pillar stool that I sit on as a Catholic is sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and, and obviously papal succession from Jesus to, to our current Pope. None of that seemed to sway him. Uh, told me he could not be my brother in Christ because I was going to hell. And told me he couldn't love me because I'm not lovable because I'm going to hell. So just curious what Christian doctrine is putting that out because he would not me what church he belonged to or what action he had. Yeah, sure. I appreciate the question. Uh, I am deeply familiar with this attitude. Um, I live in Alabama. Alabama is the heart of the Bible Belt, and not everyone in Alabama is a fundamentalist, but there are plenty of fundamentalists running around who espouse this kind of business. So I'm, I'm really familiar with it. Um, so the, the, the animus against Catholics Uh, did not begin in recent history. This kind of language was characteristic of the Protestant reformers themselves. So if you read, say, Martin Luther, for example, uh, Luther would tell you without shame that he considered the Pope to be the Antichrist. Uh, Calvin would say the same thing. Many of the early Protestants would say the same thing. And in fact, it's written into some of their doctrinal statements, earlier versions of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the confessional statement of Presbyterianism, uh, would confess belief that the Pope is the Antichrist. And so it would be it would be the normal Protestant position for many centuries that it would be impossible to be a Catholic and go to heaven. That was that was a well, if not, I wouldn't say impossible. It'd be very difficult. All right. They would say that um, that an individual Catholic might possibly go to heaven, but it would be in spite of his Catholicism, not because of it. And they saw the Catholic system as a damnable heresy that would lead people to hell. Um, now that's That's not often espoused in quite the same uh, vehemence today among most Protestants. 
Uh, but among fundamentalist Protestants, it is. It is. The fundamentalists are all about clinging to their understanding of the past uh, and what they see as the essentials of the faith, and that's how fundamentalism began. It began as a way of trying to articulate what they thought were the non-negotiables in Christianity that, that couldn't be given away to modernism. And for most of them, uh, retaining this belief in the, in, the, in the evil of the Catholic Church is part and parcel of it, right? Uh, their own view of salvation— in church authority is, of course, they have a very strict understanding of b- biblical literalism and that the Bible alone is their authority. And so if anybody has any other authority other than the Bible, that, that right there makes them suspect. And they think that salvation uh, is a matter of believing their doctrines, simply acknowledging the truth of their position or acknowledging their doctrines is what gets you to heaven. And so if you deny those doctrines, by definition, you're outside the scope of redemption. And then here's some of the vehemence that you're, that you're picking up on within fundamentalism specifically. Fundamentalism is a modern Protestant religious movement that really came in, into being in reaction against uh, Darwinism, uh, Freudianism, um, you know, trends in modern thought, philosophy, and culture. And they felt the need to isolate themselves and separate themselves from the world as they understood it. And that included other Christian denominations that didn't agree with them. So separationism became an important part of fundamentalist culture. And it got so severe that you would have fundamentalists that not only separated from non-fundamentalists, but they would separate from fundamentalists who weren't separationists. <laughs> wow. And so you, you would have what was called second-degree separationism. Mm. And uh, you've probably heard of a famous preacher by the name of Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham is beloved by most conservative evangelical Protestants and many fundamentalists. But there are extreme wings within the fundamentalist movement that consider Billy Graham to be almost as bad as the Pope. Wow. Because Graham was— avowedly ecumenical. He, he wanted to have a big tent around his ministry and mm. invite people from different traditions to mm-hmm. participate. And that willingness to collaborate, that, that embrace of ecumenicalism, was uh, for extreme separationist fundamentalists just tantamount to colluding with the Antichrist. And so they, they just had, they couldn't have any patience with that. Sue, is that helpful for you? It is. One further question is that he said that he was given the authority from God, from Jesus, to tell me that. So therefore, and I said, wait a minute, isn't God the authority? And so is there anything of that that you could speak to? How would oh, sure, be? yeah, okay. So within, within classical Protestantism, there is a doctrine that, that the Bible is understandable, that it's perspicuous, that the truth of the faith can be known, can be made known to a person, um, through the immediate illumination of the Holy Spirit, right? And that without that illumination, you, you can't really grasp the meaning or the significance of the Bible. Now, in classical Protestantism, that did not mean that every man was his own pope, right? It, that it, it, They had other ways of holding their ecclesiology together. Mm. But it devolved in popular Protestantism over the centuries and into fundamentalism effectively to the view that every man is his own pope. And, and so every individual interpreter of the Bible who's a fundamentalist will claim that he has a direct line to God and that his understanding of the Bible is authoritative uh, in virtue of his own personal intimacy with Jesus, and he doesn't need to appeal to anything other than his own uh, inner light, if you will. Quakerism uh, eventually had nothing but that inner light as their, as their sort of doctrinal bedrock. But for most Protestants, it's, you know, my private subjective relationship with Jesus— 
which is self-authenticating, right? I, I can know that I know that I know that I'm right because Christ tells me in my heart that I'm right, and that subjective certainty is the seal of my own infallibility, and that's where I stand, and that's how I can stand here and criticize you. Wow. Sue, thanks so much for your call. Appreciate hearing from you in Northwest Ohio. Call to communion here on EWTN. Be sure to join us for EWTN News in Depth. That's coming up Friday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern. This week, the anniversary of the tragic death of a British infant, prompting a discussion on parental rights and euthanasia. Also, we'll talk about the hundreds of religious communities that are facing retirement without the resources to support their aging membership. Very important program, EWTN News In-Depth, Friday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio and Television. Let's go now to John, a first-time caller in Cincinnati, listening on the great, well, uh, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. John, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello and good afternoon. Uh, yeah, I in my personal life, I pray often to the Father uh, or distinctly to the Son and also to the Holy Spirit. And I know when we gather for Mass, uh, the liturgy of the Mass that we will state in the name of the Father and the Son, uh, we'll sing songs to the Spirit. Uh, 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 but I, I, when I follow the Mass and I, I pay real close attention to the prayers we're making, Unless I'm missing it, uh, every prayer is to the Father or to the Son, and we don't distinctly pray to the Holy Spirit in uh, the liturgy of the Mass, outside of, like I say, songs or the sign of the cross. I was curious if I'm missing something or if there's a reason within the history of the liturgy why we pray distinctly to the two persons but not the third. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. You, you did qualify your statement by noting that we do sing songs to the Holy Spirit, and I would like to point out that some of those are deeply embedded in in the liturgical calendar of the Church in a profound way. So, so say, at the Solemnity of Pentecost, for example, and other Masses where the Holy Spirit is solemnly invoked. For example, the, the Jesuits have a rite they love called the Mass of the Holy Spirit. It's very common to sing the hymn, um, Vene Creator Spiritus, right? It's a great hymn, very long hymn. Go look it up. It's all, it's all to the Holy Spirit about his various gifts and so forth. So we, we definitely do have liturgical prayer to the Holy Spirit. But to your larger question, why is the Mass structured the way it is, which seems to be primarily ordered to the glory of the Father through the Son? Um, that's because of the nature of the sacrifice, that the, 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 the offer is Christ's self-offering to the Father at Calvary is very much that of a sacrifice. It's Jesus, the high priest, offering himself as a victim to God the Father in reparation for the sins of the world. And uh, so, of course, that, you know, the, the Christ's agency in that was affected by the Spirit's involvement. I mean, the Spirit's not absent from that dynamic, but it's very much the sacrifice of the Son to the Father. That's what we recapitulate in every Mass. The structure of the Mass is a recapitulation of what happened at Calvary, uh, which is a transaction of sorts between the Father and the Son. There you go, John. Appreciate your call from Cincinnati. Here is Henry now in Lenexa, Kansas. Hope I got that right. Henry is listening to us on YouTube this afternoon. Henry, what's on your mind today? Hi, can you hear me all right? Yes, go right ahead. Good. So it seems like a lot of Christians seek to follow the interior voice of the Holy Spirit into truth, and a lot of them become Catholic, but I've seen even discerning studious seekers through history have followed the Spirit to other Christian denominations. 
So my question is, is it possible that prayerfully listening to the Spirit could lead a Christian somewhere besides Catholicism? Yeah, thanks. Uh, absolutely. 100% yes. Um, uh, it's doubtful, though, that the specific direction received in such prayer uh, is, is necessarily of supernatural origin. In other words, I think it's, it's entirely possible for a person to sincerely petition God for guidance mm-hmm. and in good faith make a decision to affiliate with some uh, organization other than the Catholic Church. That, that, I think, is patently obvious. That's true. That happens. Whether or not we should interpret that decision to join, say, a Baptist church or a Lutheran church or a, a Muslim mosque or a Jewish synagogue or a Hindu ashram, whether we should interpret that decision itself to be, like, carried out under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, of that I'm a bit more doubtful, or quite a bit more doubtful. Um, and, you know, in in Christian life, the Christ has given us objective means— to know his will and to live according to it, right? And they're not purely subjective, right? We have, we have, we have scripture, we have sacred tradition, we have the visible objective church that he founded. And so if I'm trying to discern the will of God apart from the objective means that God gave me, um, I'm really not making use of all the provisions that, that Christ made. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like a well-intended, well-intended Protestant, for example, who, 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 who sets mm-hmm. out to discern the will of God by studying the Bible, you know, according to his own inner light, mm-hmm. in my judgment, is making a profound category mistake. It's not quite as bad, but it would be analogous to me saying, I really want to learn how to make a lemon meringue pie, so I'm going to go read the user's manual on my Toyota Camry. <laughs> like, I might be as sincere as the day is long, but my, the user's manual on my Toyota Camry is never going to tell me how to make a lemon meringue pie. It's just, that's just a category mistake. And, and I don't think that the Bible is the kind of book, I don't think God intended it to be the kind of book, and I, I think just a, a, a straightforward look at the Bible will tell you that it's not the kind of book that can answer those kinds of questions, because it's not a rule of faith. It's not a comprehensive account of Christian doctrine or ecclesiology or morality or spirituality or anything. It, it's occasional literature it's useful for prayer and meditation and exhortation, and it has a place in Christian worship and theological reflection, but it doesn't function that way. So if I, if I go at it with that intent, what I'm really doing is I'm taking a Protestant theological tradition, namely the doctrine of sola scriptura, and I'm applying it to a text that, for which it's not adequate and trying to squeeze out of it an answer that it's not designed to give. And what normally happens, something does give in that, and it's, it's, it's my rationality. Right, and then I, I sort of break the mold, and I end up going with what some untutored passion mm-hmm. demands, and then I then I locate that in the Spirit's agency, and I claim that God has led me to do this, when in fact I've just led myself. Henry, thank you so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Arkansas now, and we'll talk with Jim, also listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey there, Jim. What's on your mind today, sir? Thanks for taking my call. God bless to you both. Thank um, you devout Catholic. I'm a Eucharistic minister, lecture my church. Devout Catholic. Okay. So, I still have these, I'm beginning to have these real doubts about, is purgatory real? I mean, I know saints talk about it, saints house can't talk about uh, other saints, to Potter Pio, they all mention purgatory here and there, but if our sins are washed away by the blood of Christ, is, 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 is the blood of Christ not sufficient for us that we need 
purgatory, or like St. Uh, Paul says, we are righteous by faith. Yeah, So thanks. what's the need for purgatory? Yeah, I really appreciate the question. So I, um, you, you've raised several questions that I'd need to get into one at a time. I may not have time to do all of them. One of them is, what exactly does it mean when Paul talks, of us be, talks about us being justified by faith? What, what does that mean? Um, does it mean that simply by the act of faith that Christ accounts me perfectly righteous and acceptable in his sight with no moral cooperation on my part and nothing left to do? That's the way some Protestants interpret it. I, I think there's absolutely no reason to take that view. I think Scripture is just patently and obviously against that view. But, but put the question of justification aside for a moment— and ask yourself this question. Okay, let's let's assume that it's uh, the case, for the sake of argument, that, that our, our sins are washed away in uh, uh, through faith, and, and maybe baptism as well, throw that in there. Uh, we're reconciled to God. Uh, does that mean that we are all in the very same state of justification? That justification is a binary. You're either justified or you're not, and there's no other distinctions. No, that's not what it means. In fact, Scripture is very clear that there are degrees of justification. There are degrees of holiness. There are degrees of sanctity. It is possible to be in the faith, to be in Christ, uh, but not perfectly so. Um, and the admonitions in the Bible to deepen our relationship with Christ, to grow ever more fully purified. St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, for example, he says, purify, he's to believers he's writing. Yeah. Those to whom he says have the Spirit of God. Purify yourselves of everything that contaminates flesh or spirit out of reverence for God. Well, why doesn't Paul say... You guys are reconciled to God through faith. You're already perfectly purified. He doesn't say that. He says to people who are reconciled by faith, purify yourselves of everything that, that contaminates flesh or spirit out of reverence for God. Keep going. Why, why does Paul tell the Corinthians, you've, you, you're only worthy of, of spiritual milk and not solid food because you're only clinging to the first elements. You haven't yet mm. penetrated to the deeper things mm. of Christ. Why does he say that? Uh, why does he pray in Ephesians, I pray that the, to believers, I might add you, why, uh, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. These are believers. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the height, the depth, and the width, and the number of love of God that surpasses knowledge. Why does he want them to seek a deeper penetration into the things of God that penetrates beyond cognitive awareness to a participatory understanding uh, of the divine nature? Why are these uh, admonitions in the Bible that we grow in holiness and, and penetrate ever more deeply into the mystery of Christ if all that's needed is faith alone um, purifying us and, and reconciling us to God? No, there's a, there are degrees of justification. There are degrees of righteousness. There are degrees of knowledge and the love of God. Why does Christ promise reward to good works to those who are believers? Why does he say, pray to your Father in secret, give alms in secret, fast in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you? Why does he say these things? Why does Christ admonish, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God? Why does the psalmist write in Psalm 22, who can ascend the Lord, Psalm 24, who can ascend the Lord's mountain or stand on his holy hill? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so the doctrine of the purgatory, uh, Catholics believe all the people in purgatory are justified. All the people in purgatory are saved. All, all of them have been saved by faith, if you will. And yet that, that doesn't negate the necessity of a deeper purification, a deeper penetration, uh, adequate penance done for sin. All of those things are not done away with by the very dynamic that you, that you propound, namely that we're reconciled to God by faith. Okay, we're reconciled to God by faith. What do you do next? Further up and further in. Yes, for sure. Jim, thanks so much for your call. We have just enough time for Linda right here in Alabama listening on the EWTN app. Linda, what's on your mind today? Uh, thank you both for this wonderful show. It's the highlight of my day always. Um, 
A couple weeks ago, Dr. David, you mentioned that you, in their, in your early uh, adventurous Catholic days, would kind of pounce on people to kind of correct them and straighten them out as to what the faith was all about. How did you go through this transformation to where um, you can have a softer, kinder, gentler, more subtle correction? Because I left the faith for about two decades and now back, and I'm frankly just really impatient with family members that... <laughs> Because I think, like, the world is awful. How could you still believe in this garbage? How could you still, you know, advocate pornography? How could you still believe in astrology? And I just kind of, I, I've lost I've lost patience, and I don't know how sure. to get that edge back. Sure. Thank you. So I really appreciate the question. So the Catholic faith tells us that the dogmas of the Catholic Church do not save us. It is the realities to which they point that saves us. The dogma of Christ doesn't save me. Christ saves me. And how does Christ save me? Christ saves me by making me like unto himself with my cooperation. That it, and this is, I mean, I'll tell you how I evolved this position, but the, at the end of the day, what really fundamentally matters is that I, that I imitate Christ's character. That's what matters. It doesn't matter for my salvation or for yours that I persuade you to think like me. Now, maybe I'm right about something, and thinking the right thing is helpful to me to living the right way. Maybe not. But ultimately, it's about living the right way. And I've seen so much energy expended by people, Christian and non-Christian alike, on the idea that the way to change the world is, is enforced ideological purity. And you would think we would learn better after thousands of years of human history have demonstrated that that just washes the world in blood. Yeah. And it destroys relationships. And the Pope doesn't ask us to do this. He calls us to what he calls accompaniment, which is to recognize that everybody's in a different place, uh, that, that the growth towards holiness can be gradual and piecemeal, um, that our job is to elicit, not to force that growth in holiness, which must be a freely chosen act. It must be a deeply personal act that, that really proceeds from the depth of human consciousness. And uh, my goal in relationship is to be the kind of person that can elicit another's desire to change. And if I try to impose a point of view that always does the opposite, it only elicits resistance. What a great way to end the program. Linda, thanks for your call. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Mom. See you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Until then, I'm Tom Price. We will see you tomorrow. God bless.